Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to episode 634 with my guest, Dr. Carolyn Curley. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, I am not a therapist. Uh, this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. That's usually pretty apparent about 30 seconds in, but I just want to put that disclaimer up there. I am uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Um, somebody Zoom bombed one of my uh, Zoom support groups this week. Oh, it was very dramatic. Very dramatic because they were sneaky. They kept... Uh, they kept just mumbling, like under their breath, when somebody would be talking. Let's say a guy named Bill would be talking. Hey, oh, fucking Bill. God damn you, Bill. <laughs> and then they would, the, the person that was running the room was like, everybody needs to have their videos on so we can find out who this person is. And sometimes you can tell because the, the little square will light up green around the edges for the person who's speaking. But this person was really sneaking. What they kept doing was they kept um, changing their name uh, to a name of somebody who we're used to having at the meeting. So we're like, well, it can't be them because they're a regular here. And it took us about a half hour to finally get this person kicked out. But there was a part of me, like the kid in me was like, this is this is pretty funny. But I also felt really sorry for the person. And I was thinking to myself, that is... That person that's doing the Zoom bombing, that's kind of the mean voice in our brain is we it, it's just there. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to yell back at it or are you just going to try to patiently get rid of it? And the guy that runs the meeting helped, handled it so gracefully. I would have lost my shit after about five minutes and started yelling at the person. At least I think I would have. But um, I want to jump into some some surveys. I hope that's not uh, going to catch you by surprise. You idiot. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by an agender person who calls themselves son of a nice lady. And uh, they write, I'm terrified that I am possible. I am impossible to live with by nature. Many of my roommate situations in the past have dissolved into tension and people-pleasing on my end. And the one time I lived with a romantic partner blew up quite badly and led to me being evicted. A long way to ask, do you and your girlfriend live together? If so, how do you navigate the problems that come up and being in such close proximity, I would love to live with my current girlfriend, but don't want our relationship to become obligatory due to a lease. Any advice is appreciated. Um, we do not live together. And actually, one of the, I think it was on our second date, I, 
I was very transparent and I said, you know, I was married for 28 years and I don't think I ever want to live with somebody again or get married again. And she said that she was cool with that. And she has been cool with that, at least outwardly. She's been cool with it. I don't don't think she's she's hiding uh, anything. But it's interesting that, that, that you mentioned that because we did have something that we worked through this, this last weekend. She uh, has a very stressful job. She works in logistics. She is the manager of a warehouse that ships perishables. So shit that needs to be there on time, like gigantic, you know, payloads of fish and lobster and flowers and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when something goes wrong, you know, she's got to be available. I wouldn't say 24 hours a day, but it's a high stress job. And um, so she goes to that job and she usually comes and sees me on the weekend. That's a lot of driving. For her after a long day at work and of course I don't really think about that because I'm busy thinking about myself so she comes over typically she'll come over on Friday night we spend the weekend together and then we don't see each other even though we talk every day on the phone we don't see each other until the next weekend and um and I could tell that that something was wrong we were we were eating and um and she she got emotional that that she's feeling um just really worn out by the routine of what she goes through to get here. Uh, and I think particularly that day because she had something stressful happen that she didn't like the way she handled something and she was beating herself up. But the whole reason I mention this is the old me would have wanted to try to fix her or end the conversation as quickly as possible. And so I just tried to put myself in her shoes and imagine what that day is like and just listen and empathize. And I did. And and then I thought, well, you know, I said, what what can I do? Do you the issue with me going to spend time at her place on the weekend is then I need to find somebody to babysit Gracie because she's got a cat and the cat and Gracie don't get along. So um so we we worked through it and I said, well, you know, how about next weekend I come and pick you up and I put those shelves up that I've been saying I was going to do for you for two months um, and uh, and I drive you back here and then we'll get a, an Uber for you on the, on the way home on, on Sunday and problem solved, problem solved. And it's amazing <laughs> how simple... Things can be remedied or at least not made worse by just listening and asking, what can I do? Instead of getting defensive and worried that, oh, you know, she's, she thinks I'm a terrible boyfriend or, you know, whatever. And, and so we're watching television a little bit later. And, and I said to her, I, I'm so happy that you let me know what was going on with you because it helps us grow as a couple, because if she never gives me an opportunity to reveal what little character I have, uh, I, I don't think we would have the relationship that, that we have. And it, I feel like it brings us closer together. Um, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable when you are hearing that 
I wouldn't say that you're disappointing somebody, but that, but that somebody you love is in pain. But it's much better for there to be short-term pain than for shit to be ignored or to put a wall up and for that pain to not have any place to go. But I will never live with her. This is this is a survey that I don't know if I've ever read this on the air. I, I put it up years and years ago, um, and I suppose I don't read it because it's more of a statistical survey that um, as we started covering the topics of uh, sexuality on the podcast and, and more specifically that blurry line um, between what is um, that the line that can get blurred with one person's consent and the other person's interpretation of it. I think it's a lot clearer nowadays than it was when I was uh, out there. And so that led to the creating this survey, which is called uh, Handling Sexual Advances. And this is filled out by uh, a gay person who identifies as agender, and uh, they call themselves, it's clobbering time. I think we've read some of their surveys before. Um, Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. There's a little bit of crossover here with the shame and secret survey, but... um, A 24-year-old man initiated a relationship with me over the internet when I was 14, writing me swooning love letters and eventually showing up at my house in the middle of the night and asking me to sneak out to meet him. I did, partially because I was desperately lonely and partially because he was a historically suicidal military man with access to firearms, and I didn't know what he would do if I rejected him. My God. That pressure on a 14-year-old child. I didn't feel like I could say no. I remember him kissing me and how gross it made me feel. And at the time, I assumed I just didn't like kissing. Turns out kissing doesn't feel good when you don't feel like you have a choice in the matter. It was my first kiss. He also put his hands under my shirt. I don't know if he did other things too. I don't trust myself to remember. R, and then they put this in, parentheses, relationship, I don't know what to call it, stalking, grooming, abuse, question mark, or was he really my first boyfriend? Um, It continued for the better better part of the year without my parents finding out. I lost weight, didn't sleep more than a few hours a night because I was on the phone with him and passed out during class a few times. I didn't know how to ask for help. It only ended because my dad caught me talking to the man on the phone one night. Dad dragged me to my parents' bedroom. He screamed at me that I was a liar over and over. I know my siblings heard the yelling, but we've never talked about it. I was so ashamed. Dad took my phone and called the man, and I remember praying to God in my head, do what you want to me, just don't let him get in trouble. And that's so common for the... the, um, the victim to want to protect the the perpetrator. Um, um, 
Dad took my phone, called the man, and I just remember, okay, da, da, da. I was so lost that my first concern was for the man who groomed me. I don't know what my dad said to the man or if the police were contacted or what. I wasn't allowed to sleep in my room anymore or have my door closed, and it was years before I could stomach going on the internet for fun again. My parents sent me to a Christian therapist for a few weeks in the aftermath, but eventually forgot to schedule another appointment, and so that was that. I felt like such a fuck-up. I still feel a lot of shame about it, but I'm trying to remember that I was a child and deserved to be protected. I'm also scared that one of my family members may have touched me when I was little, but I don't have a memory, only a generalized sick feeling of my body being seen or touched by people in my immediate family. My mom is often inappropriately touchy with me, kissing my neck with an open mouth and smacking my butt if I walk by. I don't know if it's ever gone further than that, an emotional boundarylessness uh, between that and emotional boundarylessness between us, but I feel like my body is not my own around her. Well, you know, my thought as I read that is that... There doesn't need to be a buried memory if if what you are saying is is reality and obviously it it is um that's if your body doesn't feel like it's your own in the house where you're supposed to feel safe there doesn't need to be a buried memory of something that in and of itself is enough to cause the Things that you're feeling and how you're feeling about navigating the world and autonomy. It was was a really (laughs) awkward, uh, convoluted way for me to say, hey, I think you just hit on the issue with that last part there. That's the thing. Um, I'm so annoyed. I printed the surveys out double-sided accidentally. So I'm getting so lost in where I am. Uh, Check any of the following that apply to the history of people making sexual advances on you that you definitely didn't want. And so I I ask variations on this question. The bulk of the survey is a variation on this question. So uh, sexual advances that you definitely didn't want, then... We'll read some that you weren't sure about what you wanted, ones that you liked but weren't ready for, and then advances that you definitely wanted. Um, so um, check any that apply to the history of people making sexual advances on you that you definitely didn't want. And they checked. I clearly said no, and it stopped. I kind of resisted, but they persisted, and I gave in. I kind of resisted, but was violated. I froze, but I'm not sure they know they violated me. I froze, but I'm pretty sure they don't even know I felt violated. I gave in because I didn't know I could say no. I gave in because I was afraid of their authority. I gave in because I was afraid of making them mad. I gave in because I was afraid they'd leave me. And I gave in because I felt guilty that they weren't getting what they wanted. Um... It, it One of the things that amazes me about this survey is the variety of responses that people have experienced in 
having a, a sexual advance made to them, um, which just goes to show how, how complex our inner life from our outer actions are. And sometimes the other person has no idea and we're hoping they read our body language or that they give up or, you know, whatever. But um, so if you need to elaborate, do so. Uh, and they write, aside from the previously described grooming, I experience a lot of pressure around sex and relationships. As a gay, traumatized, ex-Catholic on libido-inhibiting medication, I have a complicated relationship with my own desire and rarely want sex at the same time as my partner. In past relationships, this has meant I often had sex I didn't want because it seemed worse to disappoint my then-partner or leave their needs unfulfilled. I cannot imagine how many people just shook their heads and went, oh my God, me too. Me too. I would fake orgasms to get them to stop touching me or to avoid hurting their feelings with the fact that I wasn't turned on. Fortunately, I took some time away from dating and having sex, and I'm now in a steady partnership with someone who has a similarly traumatic sexual history. As much as I hate that she went through that, I'm grateful to be understood in this way. We both know that not wanting sex in the moment is often not personal, and it's wild. As soon as the pressure to have unwanted sex was off, I discovered that I am able to enjoy sex. For the first time in my life, I can orgasm consistently with another person without needing to dissociate. Writing that out, I feel a little ridiculous for how huge such a basic human feeling is to me, but fuck it. I've never felt so safe with someone before. I'm grateful and proud. Yes. Yes. Boundaries. Boundaries. Continue. Uh, check any of the following that apply when sexual advances were made that you weren't sure about whether you wanted them or not. I clearly said no, and it stopped. I kind of resisted, and it stopped. I kind of resisted, but they persisted, and I gave in. I froze, but I'm not sure they know they violated me. I froze, but I'm pretty sure they don't even know I felt violated. Uh, I gave in because I didn't know I could say no. I gave in because I was afraid of their authority. I gave in because I was afraid of making them mad. I gave in because I was afraid they'd leave me. And I gave in because I felt guilty that they weren't getting what they wanted. Um, and then same responses for the question. Uh, do any of these apply to sexual advances made on you that you liked but weren't ready for? I clearly said no and it stopped and I didn't resist at all because I didn't want to dis disappoint, upset, or lose them. And then there was only one response to the question, check any of the following that apply to sexual advances that you definitely wanted. And they checked, I didn't resist at all because I was ready to be sexual and was comfortable with my choice. Is there anything you would like to share about your history in dealing with sexual advances made on you or anything about your answers you'd like to clarify? 
I want to add some nuance to my experience of being groomed. Like any skilled abuser, there were many good qualities to the man who hurt me. He was a dedicated writer, had a beautiful singing voice, and sat on the phone with me for many hours while I cried. I think he is a very lonely person. I found him on Facebook once a few years ago, and he is now married with a baby on the way. I feel scared and guilty about his wife, who is my age. I wish I could support her somehow. I'm scared that if she's in pain, it's my fault for not reporting him when it happened to me. How did answering these questions make you feel? Did you find any of them offensive? And I put that that second question in there because when I broached the subject in creating this survey of uh, that gray area of was it appropriate or inappropriate, I have this fear that people are going to go, how do you clearly not know that this is this and this is that? And that's why I, I, I think it's so important for to have us to have conversations about these things because people are complicated and the way we express ourselves is complicated. And then you throw in how we each filter reality through our own history and trauma and preconceived notions, um, things get really, really complicated. And so uh, they write, I'm anxious that someone I know will hear this and know it's me, more precisely that one of my parents will hear it. I haven't really shared any of this so blatantly with anyone besides my girlfriend, but my head feels cleaner after writing it out, and I'm able to be a little proud of myself for still being around despite it all. Yeah, that was an amazing, an amazing survey, and I cannot tell you how happy I am when I hear somebody upgrading their tools to deal with working through shit that happened to them and and to have a relationship that is thriving because you spoke your truth and you weren't afraid to disappoint them. It, it is miserable going through life as a people pleaser. It is fucking miserable. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, one of the things that I like about therapy is I am constantly, I was just t- talking about tools, I am constantly looking for new ways to deal with situations that I've ignored for for most of my life. Tools like speaking up. Um, I think one of the biggest tools I learned in therapy was what is a right-sized need? You know, I used to think that if I didn't give everybody what they wanted, I was selfish. Um, You know, when you're raised in a a household and you're told over and over again you're selfish, um, it, it, it sticks with you. And it's not that I was never selfish as a kid. It's just um, there was a lot of times I look back and I wasn't. And but um, it one of the most freeing things in therapy for me was learning what is okay to ask for. What is a reasonable need? Uh, so if you've 
Ever thought about trying therapy? You want to give it a shot? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast this episode is sponsored by the aspca pet health insurance program uh, you guys know how much uh, my dog gracie means to me now imagine this imagine that you have a gracie in your life and you're at the vet's office and uh all of a sudden you get a bill for a couple of grand. Well, if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses. And that's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, Visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And then finally, this is uh, just a snippet from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Girl on the Mend. And... Uh, what, if anything, have people said or done for you that has helped you with her issues? And she writes, my therapist has said many things that helped me with my issues, but the foundational message that he has instilled in me is that my childhood was not my fault, that I was powerless but a survivor. It used to be his voice, her abusive dad, in my head saying this. But Oh, I'm sorry, no, her therapist's voice uh, saying this, but now it is mine. He has shown me that people can be consistent, honest, and accepting. He is teaching me how to trust, to have a fulfilling relationship, and how to set boundaries to protect myself. My husband has shown me compassion and patience as I reveal my past to him and the sexual dysfunction that has come along with it. He is helping me regain power over my body by never making sex an obligation and never doing anything non-consensual. He is willing to learn my triggers and avoid them. It's a slow process, but my growing relationships with these two men is helping me heal from years of abuse and degradation. My consciousness might be disintegrating. 
heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. With or... my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering ordinary is where all the good stuff happens is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions it is very hard to heal in dark isolation i developed compassion it is in connection and community where that happens the process was nearly unbearable like i'm gonna have to kill myself we'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with uh, Dr. Carolyn Curley. Thank you for making the slog up from uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You are a biologist, and uh, you have written about um, human beings' struggle uh, mentally. This is the book is actually from the work I've done with a lot of my students at the University of California, San Diego, who I teach and work with, um, based on stories they would tell me um, about their mental life and what was troubling them and what was going on for them. And so I was giving the same advice sort of over and over again to these students. And um, it's a departure from my conservation biology work. But I think that what you said that it's um they, they kind of do have a connection because when you watch animals which i've done a lot of work on big animals and small animals you notice that they're not stuck in their heads telling themselves stories that block their access to whatever it is they need to do mm-hmm. right so so i've watched um, a female northern fur seal giving birth to her pup on a rookery up in St. Paul Island in the Bering Sea. And I'm watching, and it's the baby's coming out. It's amazing. She makes one false move, swings her rear end around, knocks the baby's head into a rock. The baby's dead before it gets out. It's totally accidental. She goes to look at the baby. It's gone. And then she just goes about her business. <laughs> so, wow. I know. And so I... I can see how we as human animals, we have all this stuff. We would create an entire story. Of course, a human baby dying is a much different than an animal on a rookery where there are so many. But but does that make sense? So so I guess yes. there can be – there is a – when I see nature and I see how nature unfolds with no story other than – it's unfolding. Mm-hmm. That is what I wish for humans, for us, for people to unfold with the flow of the life around you, guided by your internal voice that's giving you wisdom rather than whatever you've come up with in your head. The that's catastrophizing. The whatever it is, like yeah. all of the stories. Isn't that one of the hardest things in life to accept is the way that the universe expands? I mean, if you. <laughs> Think about, look at it, pull back as far away. I guess you couldn't pull away further than the universe, but take the biggest view that you could. And to look at that expanding and think, how in the fuck can I think that I have any control 
over yeah. the things that I worry about. Yes. Yeah, we got control over whether you know we can go do the laundry at one o'clock right? rather than two o'clock. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what traffic is going to be like, how whether or not somebody's going to like us, and yet mm. we spend most of our waking hours worrying about things yeah. that we have no control over. Yeah, how do you personally deal with the illusion <laughs> of control? Well, it's. It's interesting because I'm a scientist. I have all this science training, right? But I'm also someone who has a spiritual part of me. And so in a step to answering your question, I'm just going to say one thing. Part of writing this book was coming out of hiding to the wider world as to how I view life. So I love your analogy of stepping back and realizing how microscopic we are. But yet at the same time, we feel so mighty and huge as individuals, right? So for me, I remember, so I was raised Catholic. I'm no longer any religion, but I was lucky because I was raised in a Catholic church with a very progressive priest, Father Godly. I always give him a shout out. I know he's still alive in Ireland. And he he said something that I'm sure was going around in like 1970s, 80s Catholicism, like let go, let God. Mm-hmm. I don't know what God is. I have no idea. But that concept of letting go, let the universe, let the flow, whatever, is so powerful to me. And and that's part of the crux of the book is to be your authentic, most true self, you must let go. You have to let go. You must. And you you don't have to understand what you're letting go to, just that it's not you. Right. And to me, I love not knowing. So I'm an ecologist and part of ecology is it's kind of a gray science because you're just trying to describe nature and come up with some reasonable theory about why you see what you see in nature. But it's never 100% true because you don't really know. You can't measure everything. And I love that about ecology. It's the same about these concepts. How How can we as humans be most authentic? Well, it's... It's trusting that you're actually perfect and you need – the way I view it, we are all whatever that spark is. And it's in like the very first – one of the first quotes of my book is, we are a spark of radiance. Everything alive is that. And yet we're stuck in these bodies, these amazing bodies that I don't want to discount. I love – I love that I have all this physicality. I love that I have this logical brain, but I also recognize that I am something else also. Right. So are you. Yeah. So is your little doggy, mm. Gracie. And if we can stop the false stories and get more in with that, mm-hmm. then the authenticity can come about. Then the control can be let down and you're actually giving a gift to everyone because now you're the shiny paul gilmartin spark Mm -hmm. because you're the same spark as me but you're just in this body and you're getting out of your own way yes which is the biggest challenge in life and the most important thing that you can do and i and i believe you know you were talking about spirituality that is a spiritual decision and inherent in that is the belief that you're not a mistake yes that is so true. Because if you're the same spark as me, I don't think I'm a mistake. And you're exactly the same as me, as is every single other being that's alive, the plant, the person, whatever. 
we're all we're all exactly yeah. the same spark, and you get to be it as Paul. I get to be it as Carolyn. Gracie gets to be it as Gracie. You know, right. it's and if you if you if you let the stories and the falseness cloud that, then you're just moving through the world as a as a as sort of a weaker version of that spark that is the most beautiful part of everything yeah. alive. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it before I got sober, I used to think that. The answer was I needed to be more. Oh, yeah. And I realized I needed to just let go of things that I thought were true. (laughs) Right. And it's Mm -hmm. a process of shedding. Mm -hmm. And most of our struggles are just blankets that have been laid over us by our story or things that society tells us. Yeah. Um, Do you, I find myself sometimes just curious. Mm about the evolutionary purpose or vestiges yeah. of things. Do you find yourself looking at yes. things through that prism? Talk about that. Absolutely. I can't help it because I, I teach a class every year. It's the Introduction to Ecology and Evolution, and we teach five weeks of evolution, five weeks of ecology. And I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I love evolution. It's so fun. And I think about that all the time. These voices in our heads that we make up that convince us we're inadequate or that resources are scarce or that we're obligated or that we're unworthy, they have to be amplifications of something that helped us when right. we were more in touch right. with nature. Why did, well, Otherwise, how, we would have died. They would have died, right? How, how was the villager <laughs> helped by obsessing about whether or not the next door village liked them? <laughs> well, I think it has to do more with the tiger that's going to eat you. Or, yeah. you know, if you're vigilant, if you're, if you're vigilant, then your babies might survive. You know, if, if you keep them in the cave with you and you don't put them in the cave down the hall and you're vigilant and you do all the things – then you're going to pass those genes on, right. right? And and I and so now we live in a society where there aren't tigers chasing us. So we make shit up like um that person doesn't like me on social media and 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 you build it. And I don't want to discount the role. You said something important a minute ago, the blankets we receive um that we have to carry around and and I think of it as we have this spark, but we get this stuff that happens in our life that junks up the spark mm-hmm. and blocks our access to it, whatever the hell the spark is. And um, I think of um, my best friend from when I got my master's degree, she suffered from depression her whole life. And she had um, a parent who was horrific to her. And and I remember learning in my 20s when I – when we were, she and I were super close and she told me everything about what it was to be depressed. I don't have a brain like that. My brain does not work like that. But if my brain can be this way, then why can't her brain be that way? And then, then all these data started coming out, linking correlations between traumatic childhoods and incidences of depression and other traumatic burdens that humans carry. So I don't want to discount the role that all that stuff plays. I mean, yeah. I mean, literally and it amplifies the, the voices, the, right? the thickness of the frontal cortex. Absolutely. It yes. changes the brain structure. Executive function. Yes. Impulsivity. Yes. And even if you're, if you're be a fetus in a mother who's stressed out, you, your brain changes because you come out of the womb ready for the tigers that you think are there because your mom's yeah. been bathing you in her stress hormones. Not nothing against stressed out moms. Please don't take that. But, um, but yeah, so so learning about all those things that can happen to us. So 
I just want to there's a there's an allegory in my book called the ravine, and it's this um, story for what it feels like to know that there's to have this intuition, this guidance that there's something brighter and easier and more content filled at the top of a ravine. But I want to recognize that some people have a ravine that's a lot deeper than other people, right? And so, but it doesn't mean that they aren't still that spark of goodness and light. Right. It just means they may have to climb a little h- higher. They may have to process trauma exactly. or find a community. Right, right. exactly. I- and um, yeah, so I just don't want to discount that because I I read the book that I put together seems simplified, but I think all of these types of books are sim- seem simplified, yeah. but I just want to recognize that people have. And one of the things I recoil from is the the myth that if you just picture yourself at the top of the ravine, mm-hmm. you'll get out of the thousand foot deep ravine yeah. because you just need to be more positive. <laughs> yes. Sure, positivity may be a part mm-hmm. of the overall regimen mm-hmm. to help yourself get to a, a, a healthier place. One of the tools that I've found most helpful is accepting mm. that I'm in this ravine. Doesn't mean I'm not going to do what I can to get out of it, but I'm going to accept today that it is where I am. Yes. And and also, do you also find building on that, this idea of the futility of labeling things good or bad? So fucking hard. Right? So but hard to not do that. It's so Hard, but one of the things I love as a scientist, I love data, right? Data are great. But now looking back at your life with the data you've collected over however many years, would you change your addiction? Would you change these bad, quote unquote, things that have happened to you? I look at my life and I think, oh, my God, that was so, quote unquote, bad when it was happening. I wouldn't change a fucking thing. It's a forced gym membership. Yeah. And you get the exactly. muscle. You yes. get you you sometimes we need to have our heads held in the dog shit and some people need a little more head holding than mm-hmm. others before they wake up and realize, oh wait a minute, I I can actually choose to have this go a different way. But it takes something really hard to wake them up to that. The thing that I struggle with the most is the wreckage. And yeah, the yeah. people that yeah. I affected. Yeah. That's a really, really hard yes. thing to let go of. And there's even a selfish component to that, which is what they think of me. Yeah. And and I hate that that rears its head, that it can't just be completely altruistic that, you know, I wish I didn't cause them pain. I do wish that I didn't cause them pain, but I also have this part of me that wants to look good. I would ask you, is it all, quote unquote, bad that you caused them pain? Their pain, yes. Do you think it always is? Because I wonder if, let's let's build on the analogy of this. We don't know what the universe is doing. We have no, we, there's so much that's unknown, right? So what if you were just playing the part of that experience because it was for them to also learn something? Not to discount the things we do to other humans that cause... But it might have helped their growth. It might have. Right. Not to say that what you did can be excused. And I, I'm sitting here. I can feel that you're sorry 
about that, that you have remorse. Thus, I think it served a potentially beautiful purpose. You know, we could go back to them. And and I, I personally have had people do things to me that were painful or bad. And maybe it's just how my brain works, but I am grateful. And so potentially this burden people carry around when they think of, I did this terrible thing to someone. Yes, it's important to recognize when we do things that hurt others, but it's also important to not extensively beat yourself up for it, make amends, do the things that you need to do, and then think, well, did I actually play a role in whatever the universe needed for that person to do whatever they needed to do? Um, I think a doable attitude to get to is to say both are true. Very beautiful. Exactly. Because none of it's not true. All of it is true. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah. one of the most difficult yeah. things, I think, for the human brain to yes. to understand is two completely disparate truths can yes. exist at the same time. Mm-hmm. That somebody could have done, done something terrible to you and they're an awesome person. You know, my yeah. my mother is a great example yes. of that. She gave me many beautiful things in life, and she also did things that were really fucked up. And, and yes, and it. If I never processed the things that were fucked up, I would still be holding on to the story that the totality of my relationship with her was the thing she did that fucked me up. Yeah, but I think until we hit that gym, yeah, for the soul. And yeah. work through that stuff, we can't see the gifts that were also in that package. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you have to be in relationship with that person. Correct. I I learned that from Kate. I just mentioned her. Um, I My former spouse, he is similar. His upbringing was such that he has a doesn't have a strong relationship with his family. I, I have many people who've taught me that it's perfectly okay to see someone recognize they are that spark and then choose not to have a relationship. With so them. important. <laughs> it's so, so important. wonderful. Yeah. I, one of the most important epiphanies that I I had is it's important to have compassion for other people, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. I've heard you say that on this show, and every time you say it, I tear up because it is so true. And I think that a lot of people. They build their stories. Um, so in, in in my book, I talk about these unproductive grooves that people get stuck in. And part of the stories that pe- we build to hold ourselves in those unproductive grooves. So it's important to know where do our stories come from. Yes, these things may happen. There might be an element of truth, but but also recognizing the other part as well. Always, always, always. Do you ever wonder about the evolutionary purpose of society being littered with psychopaths? I have thought about that. And I okay, so maybe this is the Pollyanna part. So are, do you think it's really littered with psychopaths and and maybe you should help me understand what you mean by psychopath? Uh by people who who um can't empathize right. and who see yeah. the uh humanity as a chessboard. Mm-hmm. to squeeze things out of that make life feel worth living for them. And mm-hmm. when I say littered, <laughs> you know, I, I, I believe the estimates are one per hundred people uh, have the, the traits of mm-hmm. psychopathy. 
well, imagine if if the whole goal of evolution by natural selection is to get your genes into the next generation, right? Just get your genes into the next generation. And you and you're you don't have empathy and you're getting your genes forward, then that's why we still have them. Because there must be some sort of evolutionary advantage, right? Because it in a certain time in human history, and, and I would say it's still the case, but um, our um, survival was really dependent on our inner inner relationships with other humans, right? You weren't going to make it if you were all on your own. And um, so the psychopath may have been kept in check a little bit because they couldn't just kill their whole village or or whatever, you know. And so – but on the other hand, they're – selfish behavior could have had an advantage, right? Because then they would get the food that they needed for their kids or their offspring. So yeah, that, I'm sure that plays a role in it. And I, um, and I would also imagine that, you know, if you, if you think about the analogy of it, you know, life being a, uh, a gym for our brains and our souls and, um, for our, I guess, soul and spirit would be the same thing, mm -hmm. um, that they are pushing our cardio. Yeah. They're challenging us. Mm -hmm. And so we have to adapt to deal with suddenly this world where they don't abide by the same thoughts and values that we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we we have to become a more resilient person to, to deal with that unknown. But – the damage that psychopathy i mean i th i think often about the political or um uh, corporate yeah psychopathic personality yeah. and the wreckage yeah um but then again i guess that uh wasn't on a scale when things were villages <laughs> i guess not but but i but i will say and i'm not well versed in what truly is going on in the brain of a psychopath. But I think of political leaders who could be considered non-empathetic and um, I won't mention any by name, but I can still see their spark. I can't, I cannot help it. Yeah. And so I always wonder what the hell happened to them? Was it that, genetic or was, was it, it genetic or was it something is it is it so is it does it come down to the very 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 basic thing they didn't get enough love so they are missing at the attachment you know the whole attachment theory thing is that all it ever comes down to I don't know well do you believe in the uh you know the analogy that uh, genetics are uh, genes are the gun and environment pulls the trigger it's so hard to say I know you don't have kids, but something that happened that was kind of revelation, revel, revelation, revelation for me was when I had my son almost 16 years ago, and he came out, and I see him for the first time, and I'm like, holy shit, this being has been out of me for 10 minutes, and I already feel and see his personality. Really? Yes. I am not kidding you. And I've I talked to other parents, and I'm like, is this a thing? And they're like, oh, yeah. We noticed it too, and not everyone, but that personality has remained consistent. My son's going to be 16 on Friday, and 
So, you know, I don't know. Where did that come from? And then there's this whole question of, did we, were we here before? Were our souls, have our souls been here before? I think about that all, all the, the time. All the time, right? And I will tell you, I have two stories of my kid potentially, like, having been here before, like, giving me glimpses. And I think, what did he arrive with mm-hmm. that, that, that we, who knows, you know, and it's just my t- turn to shepherd him as his mom this time. So, so there's all of this, again, that goes in the category of unknown, mm-hmm. right? And um, so maybe the psychopath, it's their turn to be on the planet as a psychopath. I, w- I was just thinking about that the other day, and I was, I don't know, I, there was something uh, that had to do with rich, famous people, and um, and it it was, you know, you get a glimpse into that side of them, the, you know, the darkness of the uh, echelon of business where it's really dog-eat-dog, yeah. and um, people make choices uh in an instant where they're not even thinking about somebody else's situation. It's just what's going to be best for their career. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about reincarnation, Mm -hmm. I was, I was wondering, you know, what if it's a process and we start out with a challenge that's either the easiest challenge as a human being or the most difficult challenge or, you know, states of spiritual quality and i thought probably the first one that you would start out with the lowest would be getting everything that you want (laughs) and maybe the highest one is poverty (laughs) living next to a a garbage heap Mm -hmm. i think about that all the time i think about that in terms of grace too i love this idea of grace but it seems so fickle and so ephemeral and yet also completely accessible to everyone so you just said the thing about the garbage dump like why did i get born to you know middle class nice loving parents in a suburb of seattle and someone else gets born and has to work on the garbage dump every day from the time they're four right and well this time around they're going to learn the lessons about being on a garbage dump and i'm learning the lessons of um a white middle class lady from the Northwest. Do you, do you know, that's the yeah. only way I can reconcile it. And the same with, with grace that, that I, and when I say grace, I mean, when we are given a tool that helps us become a little more self-aware, mm-hmm. that to me is grace, right? So how, how do you get grace and you get sober and someone else ends up dying from their addiction? I think about that one. And the only positive that I can take out of it is that they were um, not necessarily by their own choosing, but they were a um, an instrument for learning for the rest of it, us. Yes. Because I, I think some of the greatest lessons we can have is what we don't want to be. Yeah. And when I'm in a support group meeting and I find myself starting to get irritated by somebody's <laughs> share, I just remember – you know, take note to self of what you don't want to be. Yeah, I think that's really good. I actually give that advice to my students all the time. I, I do that experience because it's just as important to learn if you like that as if you don't like it, because it will give you data as you start building your life. Yeah. 
I think a, a lot of times about the creatures that live at the bottom of the sea that mm. have no vision. Mm-hmm. And I think they're interpreting a world yeah. that I imagine th- in their imagination is so different from what we experience. And yet it's the same beaker full of cells coming into mm-hmm. their pathway and they're reacting to. And I wonder sometimes what life would be like if we experienced it through a different body um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what the interactions, because I believe it's all about atoms mm, and yeah. charge. And, and I just uh, wonder sometimes how far off we are from not necessarily reality, but how different uh, the experience could be if 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 we experience things just through whiskers, uh, yeah. touching things, yeah. and we didn't have yeah sight. All the things we well, I think it's I think what you're describing is the human condition because you and I are sitting in a room in your house. And you're having your experience. I'm having my experience. We're trying to describe things that aren't really describable. Right. And we're both pointing to it as best we can. But it's like you have one tiny picture of the whole. I have another tiny picture of the whole. And we're just constantly trying to come together as humans to put our little tiny pictures together so we have a bigger whole, right? Like so W H O L E um hole. And and I think that that's akin to being the creatures on the bottom of the sea. I cannot understand your world. Right. Try as you might to describe to me, and you've been doing a really good job of it for years on a show where you let us see your guts. I still don't know. I have a glimpse of what the world is through your experience. And I think that that's what we're all doing as humans. We're having our experience. We're all the same inside, but yet our interpretation of the experience is so diverse. And that's part of what makes up the whole and allows me to see us as this, like you talk about going back, going out and looking down sort of from the universe perspective. That's what we're all doing. We're all these little atoms, if you will, right. you know, that are yeah. just kind of bonking off each other. And the the charge you mentioned, the electricity. Well, somehow I get to be in your your house talking about this with you. We get to bump into each other for this hour. How amazing! I, I wonder sometimes what Gracie would feel like if my uh, sensory tools were different. Yeah. If if she were. If yeah. we were both just cells yeah. and we were interacting with yeah. each other, would I experience the same sense of connection and love? Interesting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you into the wild animal world. From I'm assuming you haven't done much work on wild animals. No. Right? Okay. No. So there's this there's this interesting thing that happens when you're trying to get a sample from an animal. So I've worked on big animals and small animals, and you can almost the way I approach it is I I feel into what that animal is experiencing. So, for example, I did a little bit of work on raccoons up in the San Juans, and I was told you're going to have to put them out with ketamine. You can't get near a raccoon. They will maul you. I was like, well, maybe. So we captured them in these cages, and I was able – I didn't 
I the the animal was still caged. I wore gloves in case, it, but I was able to get the stuff I needed without putting it down. And it's a matter of kind of calming your nervous system to sort of match the nervous system and like kind of do something reassuring. Same with working with um, lots of pinniped pups I've worked with. There's a way of calming your nervous system that they feed off of, and you've mm-hmm. probably experienced that with your puppy. Yeah, you know where you can you can kind of feel that energetic connection with your dog it's the same with wild animals and i've seen people who are good with working with animals and not good and it all comes down to can they calm their energy and kind of put themselves into that place of that animal you know what are they experiencing and so yeah i think about that a lot like how are they viewing this world you know a bunch of humans just showed up on their rookery we just chased their moms away and now we're gonna take fur from them and so funny that you mentioned yeah. raccoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, just last night, I stumbled across a YouTube video of this mm-hmm. Canadian guy. Midwinter, thirty raccoons at his back door because he feeds them. I don't know how regularly, but he feeds them raw hot dogs and frozen oh. grapes. Oh, wow. And so he taught just to get the door open. He has to toss a bucket of grapes out. <laughs> so you see all these raccoons just eating these grapes, and then he sits down on the bench with this tub of hot dogs uh-huh. and begins feeding them. And they're on his shoulder. Oh, they're wow. here and there. And none of them, they're all acting like dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And say That's what so you lovely. will about, you know, how he's in affecting the, the natural and en- environment and Whatever. whether it's healthy or not. Mm-hmm. It's just plain fucking it's funny cool. and yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of, so I've worked a lot on rats on islands and I, I did my whole PhD going out to the Aleutian Islands and staying on islands covered with rats. And oh, I, my God. I remember the first time I did it, um, I convinced my friend Shauna to come with me because I had to bring a buddy. And um, the ship drops me off and we're there for like two weeks. And I'm like, well, what's it going to be like when the rats come out in the evening? And sure enough, they're just like teeming. It's just like teeming with rats. They're everywhere. And and I'm thinking, oh, God. And, and I think they're going to try and get in. They're going to try and – they're 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 rats they're going to be awful it was just like squirrels it, when you're in a natural place there's no humans on we were on rat island it's called it's since been renamed since we got rid of the rats but we were on rat island it's teeming with rats there's no other humans there it just feels like wild animals and after one night you just feel like one with the rats right. it's not like being in a back alley in new york and having garbage rats crawling on you or whatever oh, why did were the rats gotten rid of oh because sorry yeah um they they're invasive on these islands. Um, about 17 islands in the Aleutians have invasive rats, and they eat all the birds that are natives. Uh-huh. And so we, I was studying what the impacts the rats were having on the rocky intertidal system, and so we had to stay out there and do a bunch of work on the rats. And we got to watch them through night vision binoculars and see what they were doing. And, and then we um, – managed to take those data and the Nature Conservancy and a couple other groups got together and, and did a, a pilot um, project to see if they could actually get rid of rats on an island in the middle of the Bering Sea, and they did. And the island has recovered. It's really a great conservation story. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back and touch yeah. on, uh, <laughs> on your uh, book. It's called mm-hmm. The Guidance Groove, Escape Unproductive Habits, Trust Your Intuition, and Be True. Uh, what are some you, – you mentioned the same subjects coming up again and again when you were giving advice to students who mm. approached you. 
what are some of the greatest hits of mm -hmm. struggles and yeah. things that you had to share with them? Well, first, let me just tell you that these are brilliant kids. I, I say kids are like 18 to 22 year olds or grownups, but they're brilliant. You, it's really hard to get into UC San Diego. So just I want everyone to know that these are people who you would think they're just fine, right? Imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So many of them don't believe they belong there, that somehow it's a fluke that they got in. You know, they don't belong there. They're not smart enough. The second one is they're all they're pursuing degrees that fill them with deadness and dread because their parents or their their group, whatever, has these expectations that they should have a job that pays a lot of money, even if they're shells of humans for the next 50 years. So those were two of the biggest ones. And um, and then just the typical things of feeling lonely. We do this weird thing where we send our 18-year-olds off into these places where they don't know anyone. And it's often that, <laughs> that age range where the mental illness yes. begins to present yes. itself. And they're all by themselves. And maybe they want to get away from their parents, but maybe maybe it's kind of hard and they don't have a support system. They don't have the friends they had in high school. They might be struggling with these mental things and they're afraid to talk about it. My dear friend Kate, when she finally ended her life in 2015, nobody knew that she had actually committed suicide or if they found out they were shocked because she'd hidden her depression from all but just a few of us. So it, there's still, in 2023, there's still a stigma attached to mental health issues. And so these students would feel safe somehow coming to me and then come to my office hours and I would just tell them, Okay, well, what do you, what is your spark telling you you want to do? You want to design costumes for the theater department? Godspeed. Quit your physics degree and go design costumes. But I won't make money. This is, okay, well, at some point, the, the discomfort with doing the thing that's not your soul path is going to become great enough that you will break and you will go. Or... You could recognize the calling of your soul path right now and do it. And neither one is wrong or bad right. because maybe they need to go further and quote unquote break. Um, but that those are the things I was hearing. I, I look back mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college, my junior year of college, mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, pre-med. I was right. a good student getting ready to take the MCATs and some – I, I – I, Pictured myself at 35 and, of course, catastrophizing. I went, okay, yeah. what happens if I get cancer? And I thought, I will look back at my life yeah. and think, why didn't I do something creative? And I changed mm. my major to theater. Wonderful. And I was you know, lucky enough to have parents who said, do what your soul tells you you want to do because yeah. you will pour yourself into it. And you will probably be good at it and be able to support yourself. Yeah. And I look back at how much I was struggling mentally and emotionally, yeah. how out of touch with my intuition mm -hmm. and how amazing it was that I found yeah. the courage or stupidity to to make that decision. You know, as you were sharing about these these kids who are just doing things for other people or they're out of touch with our intuition, it's like we're born with this intuition when we're kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It gets kind of hammered out of us 
And then in our 30s and 40s, if we're lucky enough, we get back in touch with it. But the the time period you're talking about, high school, college, 20s, boy, are we lost yeah. with and being in touch with our intuition. And I want to tell people, and I say this in the book, but I really want to hammer it home. It is not your fault that you lost touch with your tuition. Your your parents, society, the messages, they're co- all of that is constantly trying to make you believe the bullshit stories because it serves – I mean, do we want to call it the patriarchy? It serves the society that we've created – that you believe the nonsense because if everyone follows their heart and their intuition, imagine what that would be. Who'd make the money? Who's going to telemarket? Who's going to who's going to do the stuff that like we're all supposed to be doing, quote unquote, right? right? And and so, and you said it. You said courage or stupidity. Let's get the stupidity out. It's pure stone cold bravery to reject. Everything you've been told by your parents, your friends, you, the society, and follow this nebulous voice that none of us can really define, right. that is hardcore courage and bravery. But the coolest part is the more you do it, again, you're collecting data. Oh, I followed my intuition on that one. And God, look how it turned out. Yeah. I'm going to write that down because I don't want to forget I didn't follow my intuition on that one. How did that turn out? I want to write that one down. So the, I think you said the older we get, I think it's because we just have collected more data that we've learned. Yeah, I'm more content. I'm more at ease. I'm more authentic. I'm more at peace if I listen to that nebulous voice that we can't describe. And, and I think we just we get describe. tired of having social stomach aches. Yes, right? Or some people have a really high tolerance for it. Yeah. They have a really high tolerance for closing off. And I again, I talk about this in the book, the idea of approaching life from a place of wholeness. So we we love our mental brains, right? Um, society tells us logic, um, doing, all of those things that rely on our mental realm. But then we end up just walking around as heads. So then well, what is my body actually telling me? What are my feelings telling me? You have an entire system of data collection below your chin that that we cut off right yep. and you said it perfectly walking around with a stomach ache mm-hmm. and and i would encourage people to think of a time when they had a decision facing them or they're about to take the mcats like you just said how do you feel do you feel eased do you feel expansion do you feel green lights go or do you feel oh no, thank you. And like physical maladies, like a stomach ache or a headache or something, that's data. Those are data. That's your body trying to help you look and and see that you have – you don't have to follow what your head story is telling you. It's so hard when it's your normal. Uh, and yes. Especially oh, if you tell yourself point. it's because yes. you, you're not enough mm-hmm, rather than mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not authentic. And I love oh, yeah. when you talk oh, about yeah. – viewing uh, reality through the prism of inauthenticity or authenticity. But boy, is that a steep learning curve Yeah, um, because we often don't know what authenticity or inauthenticity is until we get a taste of authenticity. Yes. And then we look back and we're like, how in the fuck did I think that was the right major for yeah. me? Yeah, yeah, that f- that fakeness, that fakeness. This, it's again, it's the stories, and 
There are so – so to write a book like this that's not based on hardcore science data mm-hmm. was kind of hard for me. But I, but I had to let go and just follow the flow of the book, right? But I do have a couple instances where I refer to data. And one of them is there, there's a pile of psychological research looking at how authenticity is related to things like contentment and happiness and fulfillment, all of these different measures of human well-being, and so then what is authenticity? Authenticity is following that voice that we're trying to describe that can't be fully defined. And in the book, I have this like list of all the things people call their voice, you know, Buddha nature, God, universe, spidey sense, intuition, guidance, whatever you want to call it. And when you when you follow that trueness, true voice, then your authenticity can arise. And notice what happens in your body. Even Start tiny, start really, really small. What feels good to eat for breakfast? You know, how does your body feel when you do that? You don't have to make giant decisions right. and then feel it. You can make tiny ones and feel the response in your body. And then you start to, again, get data. Well, that feels more peaceful and at ease. I'm going to keep doing that. And you practice and you practice. And life is so wonderful, right? Because we mm-hmm. just can constantly practice. And if you fuck up, that's question whether it's really a mess up, right? Right. Did you did you really mess up, or did you just miss the mark so you can fine tune it next time when you're attempting yet again to make the mark? Everything has data that can be yes. helpful embedded in it. Yeah. Even the even the the worst yes. things, and I would never tell somebody that to try to comfort them no. when they're in the process of hurting about yeah. something that happened to them mm-hmm. but um it it uh i think sometimes we just got to live long enough yes. to realize that uh, you know every everything mm-hmm. everything is everything everything contains everything yes and apologies to your listeners i have so much respect and genuine love for your listeners because we get to know them through your questionnaires. And this is so cliche, but it's true. Life is your best teacher, right? Mm -hmm. It's constantly providing you with ways in which to find your spark and, and, and get more in touch with that spark and drop little bits of the nonsense that are blocking. You can let down a little piece of garbage that you've carried every single day. You can just let down one tiny little piece of garbage. And then in one year, you'll have let down 365 pieces of garbage and you'll be like a little more connected with that spark. So yeah. there's no there's no wrong way. There's, it doesn't have to be giant. It can be tiny. No. I, th- I, I think that is definitely the most practical yes. uh, and doable route are the, are the baby steps. Yes. And one of the things that's so hard with baby steps is when there's an addiction present yeah. and we don't understand yeah. Yeah. what is healthy passion and what is addictive mm. passion. Uh, and True. One of the th- struggles with addiction can be is it's like a we feel dead when we're caught in that cycle of addiction and we need something intense to cattle prod us out of that feeling. Mm. And one of the byproducts of, of being caught in that cycle is that we don't, we can't feel the beautiful, subtle things around us until we get out of that cycle for long enough for our body to begin 
to slow down and our and our senses um, to become attuned, attuned to yeah. nuance, yeah. which is where the beauty of life is. That is such a great point, and I I don't tend to have an addictive personality. However, I have had to really look at my relationship to exercise. I love to move. I love it. I love to ride my bike. I love to row on my machine. I love to walk. My mom's really similar. And at some point I had to look at, well, do I love that? Why, you know, just kind of break that down a little bit, right? But I'm always curious about addiction. Is the addiction present? We know there's a genetic component. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this component of what are you trying to hide with the substance that you're using? And I, in my in my tiny experience with it, I'm wondering, it's hard to go into the dark places, right? Mm-hmm. We're taught, run away from those fears, deny your fears. In the book, I say over and over again, recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors and run toward them with like a flashlight. Oh my God, yes. Run toward them, yes. dive into them, love them, do not reject them. Hold them dear. Recognize that there are little clues to help you the wake up. The most important data. They're the so most. important, right? So so I, I have empathy for people who need to use a substance because they're so afraid to look in the closet. Mm-hmm. Because maybe looking in the closet when they were a kid would, would, would reveal that they had shitty parents who weren't capable. But that's a really hard thing to come to terms with when you're seven. Right. Yeah. And now you're 17, you're 27. Now you can maybe open the closet door and look. Yes. And the funniest thing, like I was terrified to write this book and talk to you about it. Not not today, but two years ago when I started, I thought, no one's going to take me seriously as a scientist if I admit to this spiritual path of following this nebulous voice. But I just went toward that fear and I just kept going toward it and going toward it. And every step I would take, it just got less and less present until it was gone and that's my experience with going into fear and i just always encourage people have again it takes courage so much bravery to look at your fear but the rewards are enormous two things that nobody ever tells you and we have to figure out on our own yeah though the, the one thing is if we were raised in chaotic environments or environments that weren't safe is nobody will tell you, okay, life is safe now. Oh yeah. We got to figure that out on our own. And that is one of the hardest things, especially if our body is in that constant state of anxiety, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And the other thing is kind of more humorous is nobody ever tells us we're too old for something. (laughs) We yeah. we have to yeah. learn that embarrassing lesson uh, on <laughs> our own. And you kind of look back and go, oh, I can't believe at 55, I thought I was 30. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel, don't you still feel like you're kind of like 20 most of the time? I do in, in many ways. And in many ways, it's positive. Yeah. But socially, yeah. 
There can be moments that are mm-hmm. embarrassing where True. all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you're like, why am I wearing the tennis shoes an 18-year-old would would wear? Yeah. And sometimes it takes, you know, my friends, I still wear them, but mm-hmm. sometimes <laughs> yeah. it makes, you know, takes yeah. my friends making yeah. fun of me to realize, okay, this is a choice <laughs> that I'm making that might look ridiculous, but they're comfortable and fuck what everybody mm-hmm. else thinks. But before we move on, I want I want to go back and say no one tells you when it's safe. Um, all of these things, I can talk to you all day long. And all, all these words we're saying are simply an invitation for someone who's listening to figure this shit out for themselves. Because I can't show them that it's safe. I, ca- I cannot. Mm-hmm. It only can come from within. And God, I love that because otherwise it's fake. It's not authentic, right? Right. Unless, and you can know something mentally. This is another interesting thing that underscores the importance of the connection of our whole beings. You can intellectually know that it's safe. You can intellectually know that your needs are taken care of, all that stuff, but you still are struggling with scarcity or you're still struggling with obligation or inadequacy, all these unproductive grooves that I've named. Until your body feels it and everyone knows those moments it's not just a mental aha light bulb yeah it's a full body like rocking of the information and and then then you don't see the world the same after that you may still no one's going to banish their thoughts we are right. thinking things they're just always going to happen but the time that you believe the thought might diminish. Like maybe you'll believe the thought for a week when you, you know, I'm such a piece of shit. I can't believe I did that, blah, blah, blah. Then the next time, and you're like, no, wait, that's not actually true. And it takes you a week to realize that. Well, then with practice, it might take you seven seconds to realize that. And then maybe it takes one second. And then maybe the next time it takes a whole month, but it doesn't matter. It's just this process, right? You're not going to stop your thoughts. No, It's not possible. I don't care what whoever's sitting on a mountain like in yoga position. That's just not true. That's not going to happen. But you can change the amount of time it takes that you believe the thought. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Somebody said in a meeting one time, I can't control whether or not a bird lands on my head, but I can control whether or not I let it build a nest. Yes, that's perfect. That that totally, totally rang my bell. (laughs) Yes. I think about that too. I I thought you were going to say you can't control if the bird's going to shit on you, but you can control if you let those shit stay on you. That as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I, I've really enjoyed talking oh, uh, to you. Uh, again, the book is called The Guidance Groove, Escape Unproductive Habits, Trust Your Intuition, and uh, Be True. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm not a huge social media person. Love it. Uh, my Facebook account got hacked years ago. I never could get them to fix it, so okay. I don't have it. But I, I am on LinkedIn and then um, guidancegroove.com. People can find me there. and there's um, you can contact me through the website, um, but that's, yeah, guidancegroove.com. But before we go, I just have to say that I've been listening to your podcast on off and on for years, and you are doing a massive service. Oh, thank you. I am so grateful. Your listeners are grateful. You provide a community to so many beautiful humans, and it's amazing. You're doing universe work, and it's wonderful. So I just want to... Thank you deeply. That means a lot to me. Thank you. It's wonderful what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you for having me.
Many, many thanks to her. Um, this episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And judgment-free is definitely how I would describe uh, the sessions that I've had with my cerebral therapist. Her name is Megan. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic and uh, and she's knowledgeable and she's been helping me clarify baby steps I can take to uh, help achieve the professional goals that I uh, am trying to set. Um, I'm a big fan. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off the first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast and then use the code MENTAL to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. See site for details. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Do we want to dive into some surveys, Gracie? Oh, I gave her a rawhide bone, and she is. I think she's living on the streets now. She's, she's strung out on rawhide. Let's dive into some surveys. How many times have I said that in the 11 years of the... Is it 11 years of the past? No, 12 years of the podcast. Um, let's put our toe in the water. Of some surveys. Is that a little better? This is from the Fierce survey, and this is uh, filled out by a trans woman who uh, calls herself She Womps, W H O M P S. I believe we've read uh, her survey before, one of her surveys. Share something you fear. I'm afraid that I might have borderline personality disorder. I know it's not some kind of terminal diagnosis, but it worries me because I might not be getting the help I need. I previously spoke to my therapist about it, and she didn't think I had it, in the parentheses. She felt my experience might have come about through prolonged proximity with someone who has it. Um, but a doctor I was seeing in 2021 for hormone replacement therapy offhandedly said some of my feelings related to hormone replacement therapy was the borderline personality disorder. We had never spoken about BPD before, but after that appointment... He added the diagnosis to my chart without letting me know. That is a fucking dick move. That is a dick move. I, I, oh, I have like no tolerance for the, like he's stamping a piece of meat 
You know, whether his appraisal is right or not, the way when people go about communicating things that are super important to somebody else that they might be anxious about and they're just like, stamp. Sorry about that. Um, Apparently, he spoke with a former therapist of mine and I guess between them, they decided on the diagnosis uh, and then parentheses over gender dysphoria slash being transgender. So I feel like I've had conflicting diagnoses and I'm afraid of either overburdening others by not recognizing my symptoms and getting the right treatment or continuing to experience instability in my identity, relationships, and career. I do see a counselor and I do take medication for severe depression, anxiety, and ADHD, and even occasionally work in my DBT workbook. Uh, DBT is Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is... um, a really, really awesome, um, what would you call it, modality for working on communication skills specifically for people um, with symptoms of borderline personality disorder. But cops also use it as well because it's just a great way to communicate, um, tools for communicating when you feel like you want to put your fist through a wall. Um, but I feel like the not knowing is what bothers me the most. I've been afraid to ask about the diagnosis since the last time, so I just try to do what I can can to lessen the problems I face with emotional regulation. You know, whether the diagnosis is true or not, I think the most important thing for you is to just keep doing the work that you're doing. Um, and and to communicate with your providers, whether it's a doctor or a therapist. Um, sadly, some of them aren't going to think about what it is that we need. Uh, and, and we need to ask for things. And for some of us, it's really hard. It's really hard. I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of you out there who, like me, have been in the doctor's office or some other type of service before, and we feel like we're doing them a favor, you know, by being in there. And forget that we're paying them. This is from the fear survey filled out by Self FOMO, and she writes, "I'm afraid that I am walking right past my life, not really living it." Oh, that is so. It is. So relatable. Oh, that fear that we're not doing it and it's right there. You know, that like the life we're supposed to have is a button, but we just, and and it's three feet away and everybody can see it, but we can't. And right before we die, we're going to suddenly see where that button is. (laughs) That's... Since I was a kid, I've had this strange feeling that my life was just practice. This wasn't the real deal. Sure, there were times when I was free, living the life I wanted, but I always go back to this place of not belonging in my life. The last decade, I've been so focused on trying to get better and free myself from anxiety and self-hate that it feels like I've put everything else on the back burner. But I do want to start living. How do I get there? I'm so glad you wrote this. You are there. This is what it looks like. You know, the the odometer in our life doesn't just measure 
the successes. It, it, it measures all of it. And if you stick around long enough, you're going to find out that a lot of the quote-unquote failures that you've had were necessary for you to enjoy the beautiful things that come later, either because of the knowledge that you learned or the tools that you had to develop to cope with that awful event or setback. And sometimes it's just a deeper appreciation. You know, when we don't get what we want for a couple of decades, when we get something we want, it feels pretty fucking good. But I'm so glad you, you filled that out. That, that one really hit home, uh, I think, with a lot of us. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Dolores. Hello, Dolores. And uh, have you guys ever read that book um, about the sisters who were in the IRA in the 60s? Um, it, it, I, there's been a couple of books written by them. One, one's name is similar to Dolores, but it's kind of Irish and it's spelled differently. Um, but it's a really, really good book, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now. But And there was also an interview with um, one of the sisters um, that was released. I think it was released after she died, but fascinating. I've always been fascinated by anything to do with Northern Ireland or Ireland. Continuing. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm not good enough for my boyfriend, and that's why he masturbates more than we are intimate with one another. Also, I am failing as a human because my mental health tends to get in the way of work, relationships, and day-to-day life. Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess that your boyfriend masturbating has nothing to do with you. There's a lot of people that for one reason or another, they need to masturbate, whether it's because, you know, intimacy is too intense for them or their sex drive is more than their partners. I think it would be an issue if he was masturbating instead of being intimate with you. Um, That might be something to go to joint counseling about. But... Yeah, and the mental health getting in the in the way of work relationships and day to day life. Whew. There, is there anything when you're mentally struggling that isn't affected by it? Farting. I think that's about it. I think that's about the only thing that 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 really doesn't suffer. In fact, I think it elevates it. God, I want to go back and erase that last six seconds. I'm going to be honest, I'm going to go back to the beginning of this episode. I am second-guessing the fuck out of myself. And it felt so good coming from my support group meeting. I was all confident. And I don't know. Maybe I I think I'm feeling like I didn't put enough of something in the surveys. Like like I'm missing out. Like that button thing from a, a couple of minutes ago, the the life not doing life right. I feel like I'm not doing the surveys right. And 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 the people are listening are thinking, oof, this this is not a good episode. This is dragging on. That last one you read was a snoozer. Oh my God, you're interjecting about yourself again. But it feels good to say it out loud. 
So even if it's true, it is what it is, and I can't control it. I hate negative self-talk. It's so, it's so exhausting, and yet it feels like it's so necessary to listen to it because I believe that if I do, I'm going to become a better version of myself. Instead of just going, hey, nobody's looking for you to be perfect. Yeah, maybe, maybe you did read a couple of surveys that were boring. Not the end of the world. You're a human being. Get over yourself and read the next one. That was my older brother, uh, Pete, that just came in and gave me that advice. This is from the fear survey filled out by uh, Rayana, uh, who identifies as gender fluid, and they write, uh, my worst fear is becoming a pedophile slash predator. I was sexually abused from the ages of 2 to 11 and get horrible intrusive thoughts around children. You know, that is not uncommon at all for people who've experienced childhood sexual abuse. And the important thing is, is it a fear of it or is it a longing for it that you feel like you are moving close to? Because they're two very, very different things. This is from the Loves survey, and this is filled out by Tub of Cashews. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of you, Tub of Cashews, and it's really the only way cashews should be delivered is in a big tub. Actually, like a big empty bathtub uh, from, from like the westerns that the cowboy soaks in while the hooker stands uh, smoking a, a cigarette and saying something wise from her heart of gold. That's a very specific tub. But I'm going to see if I can get my cashews delivered in them. Because that's a right size need. And my therapist taught me that. Share things you love. I love my friends. I only have five friends and they'll always be my forever five. Seeing them having fun and having fun with them. I could die happy right there. I love when I hear parents talking to their children in a respectful way. I love when I get a customer with an interesting outfit. I love daydreaming about my favorite characters. I love eating food and enjoying food. I love, love, love the hopeful feeling I get when I have a good time with my friends and family. The rare moment where I look to the future in positive light and realize that I can still make good memories and that maybe, maybe that's what life is about. I love hearing my parents' stories of their life back home, how they grew up, their old friends, their schools, crazy moments, just all the memories they kept until now. I love those little rain frogs. I love little planet, little big planet for making my childhood. I love space and cool facts about ancient histories. And I also love cashews, but not as much as I love pistachios. Now that's a survey I can get behind. And I got to go with you. It One, two, pistachios, cashews, and everything else is a distant third. If you've never had raw uh, cashew, or not cashew butter, raw pistachio butter, try it. The quality can really vary from maker to maker, but it is, now that I can't eat sugar or flour or, you know, fucking anything... <laughs> any human being would want uh that's become like my uh my little treat 
is almond cracker with raw pistachio butter on it. Yeah, yeah, life's gotten to that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Mona. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She has been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my father would yell at me in an insane matter. I think she meant manner. He would beat me and my brother. My brother was always beaten more, and that was always extremely stressful to look at him when he was crying. I felt so helpless. My father would blame me for beating my brother. I was two years younger than my brother and in general just a small kid. How the fuck could he blame you for him beating your brother? Wow. One time he started to choke me and I felt that one day it can be that he is going to kill me. How does the world feel safe to somebody after that? That the the man who is supposed to protect you is the one that is going to end your life. I, I can't imagine any positive experiences with abusers. I've had good experiences with my father. I love him very much. And I didn't understand that what he was doing was abusive until I started to live with my current boyfriend. And I realized how scared I am all the time. I would yell at myself when I dropped something in the kitchen before someone else would yell at me, my father obviously. I would totally dissociate during fights with my boyfriend. I'm jumping out of fear on any loud noise in the house. Darkest thoughts that I want my grandmother to die. Amen. We have all had enough of her bullshit and it's time we pushed her off a ship. Darkest secrets. I lied about my experiences. I lied to myself and to others. I lied about my life and mental state. I lied about studying. I lied about working in a different place than I did. I lied about having a girlfriend. I lied to myself even when I was writing a diary. It's almost unbelievable to know I was in deep depression when I was writing that diary full of successful events of my daily life. In parentheses, it was just hell. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, rape. How does sharing that make you feel? I don't feel any shame about it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? That I will always be there for him. I would say that to my brother, and he hates emotions. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace. Have you shared these things with others? Some I did, some not. I'm too ashamed. How do you feel after writing these things down like I'm worse than normal people? You know, first of all, there is no normal. Uh, I had to live 50 years on this planet to really begin to believe that. Um, and you do not sound uh, worse than, let's say, the average person. Um, I mean, look, your, you thought that your father was going to strangle you to death. You think that might affect the way your brain operates and the, the choices you make and the, and the tools that, that you've been taught to use to, to cope? You know, give yourself some leeway. When, when you haven't learned any tools to cope yet, give yourself, instead of looking at your past and what you did or didn't do, try to ask yourself, 
what can I do to equip myself with tools so that I don't do the things that I don't like doing? That's the most important thing. It's easy to get lost down the rabbit hole of I'm a piece of shit. That You know what that can be? It can often be a cop-out to keep us stuck and to shirk the responsibility of getting off our ass and actually doing something about the fact that we're fucked up inside. You know, pardon, pardon the expression that we're, that we're lost. But calling yourself a piece of shit over and over again is actually, a, to me, a form of, of, I wouldn't say laziness, but a, a form of inaction. Because a lot of times we will just think of that as an action. Well, I'm punishing myself. I'm disciplining myself by calling myself these names instead of actually doing something constructive. And, and you know, don't misconstrue that I'm, I'm letting people off the hook if they've hurt other people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's important to look to our past and try to make amends where we can, but it's the ruminating and the dwelling on it. Darkest Secrets. Um, her darkest secret, I'm just going to cut to the chase on this one. Her her dog bit a raccoon, and she's afraid that the raccoon might have since died. Um, if that's as dark as your fantasies get, uh, I want to switch lives with you. Or as dark as your, your, your darkest secrets so your secret or darkest thoughts? Darkest secrets. Yeah, that is that is so at the bottom of the list of what I have read in the 12 years of doing this podcast. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a highly specific fetish that I am deeply ashamed of. Uh, I jerk off to thinking about very fat women intentionally gaining more weight to the point of developing mobility and breathing struggles. Sometimes the content of my fantasies is sexual. Me going down on a woman as I hold her belly up with both hands in order to, um, and then parentheses are quotes, reach uh, the weight of her on top of me. Me riding her with a strap on and with her enormous belly jiggling, etc. Other times the fantasy is as mundane as thinking about my imaginary girlfriend outgrowing her clothes or struggling to fit in the car with me. I imagine that this fetish has something to do with my own body image issues. I've struggled with restrictive eating during different periods of my life, trying to make myself as small as possible. I wonder if my own feeling that I am ugly and undesirable makes me feel safer with a potential fat partner due to society's fat phobic notion that fat people have to take what they can get in terms of sexual partners. For the record, this is not something I believe, but something I think my unconscious mind has glommed onto due to extremely low self-worth. Thanks to incognito browser windows, I have discovered that this is not an uncommon kink slash fetish. That is such a fantastic sentence. Thanks to incognito browser windows. That would be a great t-shirt. Thank you, incognito browser. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh... 
I've discovered that there's an entire subcategory of online sex workers dedicated to producing this kind of content. All the same, I feel completely dirty and perverted for my brain's sexualization of extreme weight gain, and I wish to God that I could purge these thoughts from my mind forever. I've never had sex with a fat person. While my body definitely wants that, the last thing I want is to disrespect, objectify, and degrade a real, complex human being with my disgusting fetish shit. Your your fetish shit is what your fetish is shit is and don't don't call it disgusting you know it's if you were hurting somebody you you could call it disgusting but it's inside your brain and it gets you off and you're not hurting anybody so how about talking nice to yourself said the pot to the kettle I am not exclusively attracted to fat women. I also have sexual fantasies within partners, although they are not as orgasmically powerful. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I have never, ever, ever, ever shared my weight gain fetish with a single living soul, even my sex therapist. Please share that with them. Please let them help you with your anxiety about what's going on with you. They have heard everything if they've been at the job for more than six months they have heard everything and they got into that profession to help not to judge i have never even made a burner account to comment on someone's video or to chat with internet strangers about our shared desires for years i hoped that if i kept these fantasies silent and unacted upon that they would go away It's been 16 years since they started. Now I'm in my early 30s and I'm afraid that I'm stuck with this stupid fetish forever. How do you feel after writing these things down? 50% relieved, 50% revolted. Again, what a t-shirt. I want that t-shirt. 50% relieved, 50% revolted. Uh, with myself and want to throw myself off a cliff while I gouge my eyes out with a fork on the way down. You are my new favorite person. Oh, my God. You, thank you. Thank you for this. It's, while I'm sorry that you are in turmoil, um, you're... Surveys like yours are what I think keep people, one of the things that keep people listening to the podcast. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself that guy you passed on the street. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, but he's been physically abused. I'm sorry, emotionally abused. Growing up, my siblings and I were abused emotionally by our mother to varying degrees. She struggled with her own demons and passed the feelings of inadequacy and guilt that she felt onto us, constantly prying into our lives so she could criticize and belittle us once she discovered anything she could exploit. She often complained about how much more difficult her life was since we had been born, to which I once replied, what, it took being pregnant four times for you to figure that out? I've got two new friends today. 
Being the oldest son and second oldest child, I often felt singled out for this scrutiny and felt like I was held to a different standard than my siblings and other boys my age in our community. I was constantly paranoid about disappointing my mother, and even when I achieved something worthwhile, it was quickly forgotten about or devalued to the point where I felt like I was better off not having tried in the first place. I found out just before my mother died that she had spent most of my childhood intentionally sabotaging my efforts to excel at things because she didn't think she could stand to live with a child who was different from the rest of the kids. I feel cheated. Fuck, how could you not? That's That might be the first time I've read that in in the surveys of a mom self-sabotaging. I've heard of moms and dads minimizing a kid's achievement, but sabotaging them? Holy fuck. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I had a lot of positive experiences with my mom. I'm left with a kind of bitter sweetness about her, like chocolate that's too dark for my taste. Darkest thoughts. Every night as I lie in bed on the border of wakefulness and sleep, I dream of murder. I think of knives and using them to cut and slash and end people. Nobody in particular, just whoever my mind conjures up from my memories. Darkest secrets. I once exposed a person's secret life where he preyed sexually on underage girls. I did this anonymously and it culminated in his suicide. I've never told anybody about it because I think people would distrust me if I did. Well, you know, uh, my two thoughts are both of those things that this guy did were his choices. Yes, he I'm sure he was sick, um, but he decided to prey on underage girls and he decided to end his life. And you exposing somebody's secret when they're actively abusing uh, children, I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't know, maybe that's not weighing on your mind. Maybe I just read into that. Um, uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fetishize control. I fantasize about having someone place her complete trust in me, even to the point of risking her safety and letting me use her without any restraint. Writing that makes me feel like a bully. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could find a purpose for my life. I'm 40 years old, and I feel so adrift. Like, I should have figured things out by now, but I haven't. And I feel like my life is basically over, and I'm just going to punch the clock until I die. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't, because I'm still trying to articulate it all to myself. That's the great thing about support groups and therapy is you don't have to wait until you have it figured out to communicate it. It's it's just the opposite. We go there because we don't know how to communicate it. And sometimes we hear it come out of somebody's mouth and we can say, yes, that's what I'm feeling or that's what I experienced. So thank you. Thank you for filling that out. And then finally, we have some loves and this is filled out by um i believe we read half of her loves uh or maybe it's not a her they seem like a her though i'm terrible with names but i never forget a face and um uh, we read half half of uh, their loves last week and this is the other half 
I love the looking when you, I love the looking when you are reading a book and it starts to I love the looking when you're reading a book and it starts to flow and becomes effortless as if the author is talking straight to you. I wonder if they meant feeling. I'm going to I'm going to dedicate the next podcast to figuring out what word they meant to type in there. I love long phone conversations that carry from one topic to the next and you leave the conversation feeling lighter. I love when my therapist tells me I'm doing a great job at handling so much and that it never feels forced or faked, but a genuine praise. I love when my mom calls me on video chat and layers on one of those ridiculous filters like a fish for a head or a gigantic flower. Your mom sounds awesome. I love when the light pours through the window at dusk and I feel like it was just for me, like the sun is saying, I see you too. I love that one. I love sinking into a perfectly warmed bath when I am cold to the bone. Not too hot, not too tepid. I love when you're just about to text someone and they text you first. Oh, that is a great one. I love big cumulus clouds, all fluffy and huge. And I love when birds are flying in sync, moving in gigantic rhythmic motions. Those are beautiful. Thank you for those. Uh, if you guys... Uh, have never filled out a love survey or a happy moment or an awfulsome moment, please do. Those are, not only are do they help bring moments of levity to the darkness in the podcast, I love reading them. Love, love, love reading them. Um, I hope this that, that the it was just the mean voice in my brain for this episode that that it hasn't been disappointing, but you know what? If it has been, that's okay. That's okay, Paul. You gave it your best. Now go throw yourself off a cliff, you piece of shit. I'm still not there yet. I've still got some work to do with my negative self-talk. That, by the way, that would be one of the last ways I would go, is throwing myself off a cliff. You know, my fear would be that I do it wrong and I just really hurt my back. Like that guy that drove his family off a cliff in a car and they all lived. What the fuck? That cannot be planned out. That has to be, you know, you're coming home from breakfast and you're tired of hearing what everybody orders every week and you think, here's the solution. Let's take I like how I'm making light of some family's worst moment that they will experience in in all of their lives. And they are the comedic button for my podcast that is supposed to be about empathy. This really is a shitty episode. I really am failing you. The negative voice in my head is right. You are all alone, and I wish you had never listened <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had the balls to sign off like that, but I can't. I, I have to do the nice little thing that makes me feel good. The thing that's reminding you that you're not alone. And thanking you for listening. Ew.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.